Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. And let us pray. Triune divinity, God, Christ, Spirit, waken us to our union with everyone and everything, together dancing in your divine love. Amen. And please be seated. This morning marks the end of the season of Eastertide. And as we now transition to the season of ordinary time, today we celebrate another church feast, which is called Trinity Sunday. As you heard in this morning's service description, we celebrate Trinity Sunday as a feast day that the Universal Church has commemorated since 1334 AC, ACE. In one sense, every Sunday is a festival of the Trinity because the whole Trinity is at work in every moment. The Spirit of God is brooding over chaos and calling forth life, catching creation up into the dance of renewal and transformation. It's divinity as co-equal, divinity as self-giving, divinity as mutually loving, inviting all of humanity into the all-inclusive feast of belonging. I'm going to come back to this idea in just a bit, but first I want to connect this morning's sermon to a few other sermons that you've heard over the past several months. Back in November, on Christ the King Sunday, Pastor Ben preached a sermon titled, Reimagining a Community of Peace, Empire. And he talked about how the ways of empire are very often an obstacle to Jesus' community of peace. And then on the first Sunday after the Epiphany in January, I preached a sermon titled, Reimagining a Community of Peace, White Supremacy. And I talked about how white supremacy and its deep, deep connection to American white Christianity hinders Jesus' community of peace in this world. And lastly, on Transfiguration Sunday back in February, we had a sermon titled, Reimagining a Community of Peace, Perfectionism. And we talked about how the notion of needing to be perfect now, always now, is actually an obstacle to our ongoing transformation. And so with all of these sermons in mind, today's message will follow suit. On this Feast of the Trinity, I'm preaching a sermon titled, Reimagining a Community of Peace, Individualism. And we're going to talk about how individualism can often be an obstacle to Jesus' community of peace. To begin, I want to say the dream of God is the consummation of peace. I'll say that again. The dream of God is the consummation of peace. 
And we see this in our sacred scriptures. The scriptures tell a story that begins with God placing two humans in a garden, instructing them to multiply, to steward the creation, and to cultivate the land. That's how the whole thing starts in a garden. Now, fast forward through millennia and through generations and through races and through tribes, through all kinds of empires, we get to Revelation. In the Revelation, we see at the very end of the story that these two that began in the garden have multiplied into a throng of humanity. And all of creation is cultivated into a kingdom, a city of light that's marked by peace. Truly, it's a world in full bloom. That's what we see at the end, a world in full bloom, because all is at peace. Peace is God's dream for the world. And to be clear, this peace is more than merely personal or interpersonal peace. The peace that we see throughout the scriptures is a cosmic peace. And that's the divine dream, cosmic peace. Uh, The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which means to complete something, to make something sound. As a verb, shalom is used throughout the scriptures to describe the completion of buildings, the restoration of broken things, the repayment of debt. Wouldn't that be nice? As a noun, shalom is personal. It refers to the state of being, as in contentment or tranquility about the past, tranquilment about the present, about the future, even peace in death. And so it's this cosmic peace throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It's about the absence of war, the destruction of weapons, amen, and the reconciliation of enemies. That is how big God's peace is in the Hebrew scriptures. And then these concepts of peace continue in the New Testament with the word irene. Uh, Similar to shalom, irene is personal, referring to a personal state, relationship with others, and with God. But it's also a cosmic peace. It's contrasted with war and interpersonal violence. It's the proclamation of peace, which becomes the elevated vision for the messianic age during which people wake to God's goodness, to our interconnectedness, and because of this, the world flourishes into full bloom. Another word that's often used by theologians to express God's dream for the world besides peace is union, union. The notion of union expresses our intimate relationship to all things, God, humankind, and creation. And in John's Apocalypse, the final book in the Bible, we see the cosmic peace, humans at peace with themselves, humans at peace with others, humans at peace with the divine, and humans at peace with the creation in which humans live. You see, it's the ever-increasing realization of our union with all things that wakens us to divinely love all things. And it animates our participation in cultivating peace on earth because we realize that all things are already connected. And so that's the divine dream, peace on earth, as a result of our realization that everything is more connected than we ever imagined. And to be clear, this is something much more than a kind of Christian fairy tale. The notion of interconnectedness and union are realized in many of today's disciplines. For example, Big Bang Theory suggests that all things are interconnected and made of the same substance. According to Big Bang Theory, the entire universe and all of its contents were contained within a single point of infinite destiny and zero volume. Can you get your brain around that? (laughs) 
When this mighty explosion took place, the contents of that single point, which is a sea of neutrons, protons, electrons, photons, neutrinos, formed the universe in its original state, and those particles cooled, forming stars. It's as if the infinite spoke, and bang, there was life. And it all came from the same place. And then there's quantum theory's phenomenon of superposition, in which tiny objects, such as electrons and photons, are superimposed upon one another, creating a phenomenon known as quantum superposition. About this, we're told that an electron in quantum superposition can have two different velocities and can exist in two different places at the same time. Get your mind around that. About this, we're told quantum superposition, every quantum state is the sum of two or more distinct quantum states, which means that a single quantum state can be expressed as two quantum states, but each having an individual state. <laughs> kind of sounds like a Trinitarian idea. It's just confusing how it's all connected. And then there's quantum mechanics, in which particles are thought of as existing across all possible states at the same time. Of course, this is very difficult to conceive of, but the idea of non-locality, particles having no definite position of being present in more than one position at the same time, suggests a unity, because everything is interwoven. About this union of all things, physicist and cosmologist Lawrence Krauss explains, every atom in your body came from a star that exploded, and the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. You were all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because all of the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, and all things that matter for evolution weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars. And the only way that they could get into your body was if the stars were kind enough to explode. Listen to this last line. So forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. So forget Jesus, the stars died so that you could be here today. Now that's a real interesting statement. It's loaded down with uh, the weight of religious pretense, right? In which God, and, and the church has been a part of this for millennia, in which God is static and separate and far, far away. But as we've already talked about, the divine dream is peace, which is to say awakening to the union that already exists. As we read in the book of Acts, we all move and breathe and have our being in God. And so we Christians have Trinitarian theology, which explains God as circular, as relational, as inclusive, and as ever-present in this world that we call home. You see, theology is simply Christian language that attempts to describe ultimate reality and our connection to it as humans. And according to Trinitarian theology, it is all connected. Wonderfully and mysteriously connected. As we heard in this morning's gospel reading from John chapter 17, Jesus prays, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's this interrelationship that proves the divine love of God in whom we all exist. Ethicist Alexander Geswin makes a similar connection to theological union and human flourishing when he writes, 
the indivisibility of all things suddenly dawns on the subject, and he is one with all. And his concern for himself necessarily leads to concern for others to which he is identical. Morality is founded there on the knowledge of which suddenly becomes the most powerful affection one has ever known, an extension of your power into infinity. At last, you are able to be at peace with all around you and are equipped with an imperishable source of pleasure. This is the definition of happiness. Finite man now stands before nature, capital N, maybe we could say ultimate reality as a Christian people, in rapturous confidence, the one and all. This is the greatest legacy of philosophy. And so we have these ideas from Big Bang Theory to quantum theory to quantum mechanics to ethics and philosophy to an ancient Jewish story that tells us that everything came from a divine source who declared, let there be. To Jesus praying that we humans wake to our union with all things to the theological notion of a Trinitarian divinity. It is all wonderfully, surprisingly, mysteriously, and intoxicatingly connected. And it's this realization, not difference, but connectedness, not separation, but indivisibility. It is our connectedness to all things that holds within itself the possibility of peace on earth. And so, 14th century German Dominican Meister Eckhart once wrote, do you want to know what goes on in the core of the Trinity? Sure, Meister Eckhart, I would love to know. (laughs) I will tell you. In the core of the Trinity, the Father laughs and gives birth to the Son. The Son laughs back at the Father and gives birth to the Spirit. The whole Trinity laughs and gives birth to us. And of course, you could and probably should replace the word son with daughter and the word father with mother because the point of this language isn't gendered hierarchy, but but quality of connectedness, relationship. And the quality of relationship is that everything is inherently and indivisibly connected. And so Jesus gives us a new command in John chapter 13, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. And in light of this important idea that everything is connected, this is very much like saying, love yourself. Love him, love her, love they, love them, love it, love this, love that, love self, love God, love everything, love everything because it's all inextricably connected. But this isn't an easy reality to live into, is it? For example, the first biblical humans, Adam and Eve, harm themselves by attempting perfection now, always now. Well, no human can become perfect now, and so they feel shame and guilt. They can't meet their own expectations. And so, filled with shame and guilt, just a couple verses later, they begin to harm animals in order to cover themselves. This is what starts to spin out into the world when we can't even accept ourselves. And just a chapter after that, Cain and Abel are the first siblings who quickly become rivals, which results in Cain murdering his brother. It's as though in that moment of great anger that Cain thinks that that life will somehow be better living separate from his brother than living in relationship with his brother. And yet by the end of chapter four, God curses Cain for his sin, saying, you will be a wanderer on the earth. To which Cain replies, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Isn't that interesting? 
According to Cain, as ideal as isolation and autonomy may seem, uh, and may have seemed to him in his moment of anger, especially when relationships are difficult, it's actually a kind of curse to be separated from everyone and everything. And I think this is very close to where we find ourselves today. I mean, today the separation is pronounced, isn't it? Pro-life, pro-choice, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, vaccinated, unvaccinated, blue, red, Trump, Biden, Brandon, Karen. I mean, let's just cut off everyone and everything that is different. Let's just, metaphorically speaking, bury those who rouse our anger, even our righteous anger, and life will then be better. But according to this ancient story of Cain, even the buried can cry out from the dirt. Because even the buried live and are a part of our life here in this world. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have boundaries. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have strategies for how we engage people who are incredibly different from ourselves. And I'm not trying to say that we can't disagree with particular people or ideologies because anything less than love is not reflective of that which is ultimately real. And so we're passionate about every revolution of love in this world. And we Christians point at it and we say that is the divine at work. And to be clear, I'm not saying that everyone is supposed to be a relational extrovert in which we're expected to deeply engage with every person. That's not my point. Rather, my point here is perspective. You see, Cain's perspective was that it's better to bury those who are different, better to bury those who rouse our anger, whereas Jesus' perspective was that everything is connected and so everyone is welcome at a table named common. Let's not miss how these varying perspectives impact life in this world. Cain's tribal, different, separate ideology leads to murder and burying the other in the dirt, pretending as though it doesn't exist. Jesus' communal, similar, sameness, indivisible ideology leads to belonging and life together in the midst of all that is so different. Maybe you've seen this. Have you ever seen that map? It's of Canada, but Canada no longer looks like Canada because Canada now looks like a vampire. Have you seen this map before? It's kind of this idea that the East Coast and West Coast are going to join Canada, and then we're just going to leave everybody in the middle. And so Canada looks like this incredible vampire of freedom (laughs) for those of us in the great Pacific Northwest. And I get it. I get it. Right? Climate change and politics and voting and racism and everything that is wrong and so much that needs change. And there's so much difference in our city and in our state and in the Northwest and in our country and in our world. Let's just get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more and more tribal. Let's just find fewer and fewer people who think just like us. And suddenly we're going backwards into a more tribal, barbaric, individualist state of thinking. But the, in, the divine is pushing us forward into something more. Here's an exercise that I'd like you to try. For a moment, just kind of hold your hands out if you would like this, kind of like a circle, okay? If you want, you can close your eyes. If you want to look at your circle, you can. Uh, but what I'd like you to do is I'd like you in this moment now to uh, think about everybody that just so naturally resides inside your circle, 
Maybe it's your mom and dad, maybe it's not. <laughs> maybe it's some close friends. Who is in your circle? Like, who do you just hold inside that circle that is your life? As you're, as you're picturing those people, right, how does that feel? Holding those people that you love so much, you feel so safe with. Okay, now for a moment, let's just imagine who's on the outside of that circle. Can you see them? Maybe they're actually particular faces, particular people in your life. Maybe they're just ideas. I think we have a lot of ideas on the outside of our circle, and then maybe we assume that certain people hold those ideas, and so they're, they're outside the circle. And as you're, you're working on who's outside the circle, just notice, notice how you feel like with those people, trying to keep those people outside of your circle. I mean, it's a lot of... It's a lot of emotional energy to keep all those people outside of your circle. And really, what is even the notion of outside? Like, how are we keeping them outside? Because we're thinking about them. So they feel kind of close, don't they? Okay, thanks for doing that with me. Take a moment to notice how you feel. How do you feel thinking about everyone and everything that's outside? It makes me feel kind of intense inside kind of angsty. I notice that it takes a lot of energy to keep those people and those things out. Whatever, whatever out even means. These days, I'm not even sure what out means. Then in contrast, let's consider Jesus' perspective in which everything is connected and everything is in. In fact, what, what if there wasn't even a circle? Like, what if, what if our arms were just like this? Whew. That is vulnerable. That is scary kind of exciting. It's probably going to be frustrating. Oh, but it's a very different way of living life in this world. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Just a simple mind practice and we're able to notice different energies, different emotions, different thoughts, even maybe different ways that we feel in certain places in our body, trying to do that divine work of in and out, in and out, in and out, when everything is telling us that it actually all is interconnected. You see, the curse of Cain is actually our curse when we come to believe that burying others is our solution. Whereas Jesus' invitation is to ongoing inclusion around a table that continues to engage through mutual belonging that cannot be lost or taken away. Uh, during my sabbatical about a year ago, well, two years ago at this point, I was reading Iris Murdoch's uh, A Fairly Honorable Defeat. And it's become my favorite book, and I'll tell you why. It's really about this last paragraph. It's about this, this guy named, named Rupert, Julius Rupert. He walked under the Institute archway and up to the Rue. He was beginning to feel that a quiet aperitif, and then one of those really serious meals would be just what was required to complete a very satisfactory morning. He found that his digestion always improved when he was completely on his own. <laughs> He turned to the right through the streets that he remembered well and found himself at the corner of Jacob. Somebody had mentioned a restaurant here. And so Julius walked along a little and saw the sign that looked promising, dark inside, red and white check tablecloths covered with sheets of white paper, flaking brown paint, a fat cat. The food would probably be excellent. He would book a table and then return to the place for a leisurely aperitif. He began to examine the menu. 
The sun was warm upon his back and life was good. Now the thing about Julius is Julius is kind of like the antichrist through the entire story. He doesn't value people. He doesn't see his connection to people. Uh, In fact, he sees people just as one big game and sees his life as just better on his own. Now, when I read this, I was on sabbatical. It was the beginning of my sabbatical. My heart was tired. And there was something in me that thought, you know, Julius is onto something here. (laughs) Julius is really onto something. My stomach feels better when I'm not eating with too many people. I remember texting with Ben about it, uh, son of a note, because he got me onto Iris Murdoch, and uh, she's just been so good for me. And we talked about the, the work, the effort, the labor, the indigestion of relationship. But what would we prefer otherwise? What would we prefer otherwise? And is that which we would prefer truly reasonable and good for our own human flourishing? Uh, for a few months, our church has been reading uh, Wendell Berry, Jaber Crow. Some of you attended the book discussion a couple weeks ago. And, and I feel like whereas Julius is kind of this Cain character, just burying everyone, uh, Wendell Berry is holding up Jaber Crow in this, this community where all of these very different people live. And Jaber was new to the community, and they sent him a note which read, come to a little water, that's how it's spelled, W-O-R-T-E-R, drinking, D-R-A-N-K-I-N-G, come to a little water drinking party Saturday night at the grandstand whatever you want to dilute your water with will be fine (laughs) and so he shows up he shows up at a place at the road at the end of a wall and the story reads to us he groped a moment in the shadows behind him and drew out a half gallon glass jug its mouth stopped with a corn cob he withdrew the cob and held out the jug to me That fish will dry you out, he said. See if this won't moisten your swallow. I took a taste. It was a local product, as innocent of water as the inmost coal of the fire, (laughs) but also mellow and fragrant. And then I took three swallows, for the fish surely was drying me out. Did you hear what it said? Burley asked me. It said, good, good, good. He tilted the jug to his own lips, and it said, good, good. He handed it past me to Mart Rowanberry, who tilted it, and it said, good, good. Mart handled it to, handed it to Uncle Isham, and it said, good. Uncle Isham handed it to Webster Page, and it said, good. Mr. Page handed it to Julep Smallwood, who had been watching it as a cat watches a mouse. And it said, good, 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 good. <laughs> and then without Burley needing to say anything, I noticed the jug traveled back along the row of us, and Burley stoppered it and set it down again. Now that is good. Different people gathering together around a common humanity and in all of their difference, finding themselves able to declare good. Well, what does that mean for this world? What does that mean for that which is anything less than love? What do we do with that? What do we do with those ideologies, with those politics, with those people? Well, here's an idea. The very end of the story, right, where it's a city of light, and there's no evil, and all is at peace. It's after the lake of fire, which some people think like all that is bad has somehow been burned up, whatever that means. At the very end, after all of that happens, we get to the very end, and there's the city of light, and we're told that the gates are open all of the time. All of the time. And this is the dogs, the dogs, the wicked, those, those who are anything less than love, those are just outside the gates. How about that for a picture? So here we are, we gather around a common table around which everyone belongs, and everyone can walk through those gates and be a part of it. 
They might see differently, think differently, be differently. They might never come to the table. They might mock the table. They might sit at the common table and laugh in their presumption about what is good and who belongs. But they can come. Anyone who wants to come to this table can come. And everyone who comes brings more diversity and more perspective and more light. And so I say, let them come. Let's open our arms and let them come. And let's see what love might be able to do when diverse people share life together. And let us pray. Triune divinity, God, Christ, Spirit, wake us to our union with everyone and everything together dancing in your divine love. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.